Now you ever get the thought or the feeling that the simulation may in fact be the modern Western economy as a whole? I wanted to talk about that with a great economist, Dr. Robert P. Murphy. He is an Austrian economist, which is a school of thought rather than a geographical location. He's a senior fellow at the Mises Institute, the research assistant professor at Texas Tech University's Free Market Institute, and is the author of several books, all of which are great, including The Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Great Depression and the New Deal, Choice, Cooperation, Enterprise, and Human Action, and the recently released Contra Krugman, Smashing the Errors of America's Most Famous Keynesian. He also, Dr. Murphy that is, co-hosts the weekly Contra Krugman podcast with Tom Woods, where they regularly refute and eviscerate Paul Krugman's, Paul Krugman's New York Times writings. You can find out more by Dr. Murphy at consultingbyrpm.com, twitter.com slash econ. And, of course, the Contra Krugman podcast is at ContraKrugman.com. Without further ado, I give you Dr. Robert Murphy. Well, thanks, Bob, for taking the time today. How are you doing? Doing great, Stefan. Thanks for having me on. So, boy, there's a lot to talk about in terms of the mirage of economic recovery that's going on. And it's complicated by the fact that Trump is doing a lot of stuff right and is kind of enigmatic, as you want a good negotiator to be. You know, if he was upfront with his ideology, people could use that as leverage against him in negotiations. So where do you think things are from an Austrian perspective? Where do you think they may be heading? Well, sure. So the big thing I've been saying ever since, you know, 2008, basically, you know, after the financial crisis and the Fed started slashing interest rates and buying up also, you know, mortgage-backed securities and treasuries, is I was saying that's exactly what Alan Greenspan had done after the dot-com crash. And the, you know, in the Austrian view, the, the business cycle is not a free market phenomenon. It's because the banking system and nowadays, you know, central banks push the thing. You know, they push interest rates artificially low. That causes a false, unsustainable boom. And then when they start getting nervous and they raise rates, that's where what causes the bust. So I, we were just, you know, I was just pointing out that what the Fed has been doing since the crisis hit is just setting us up for an even bigger crash. And now that the Fed has started raising rates, I think that, you know, that crash is going to become coming sooner rather than later. So regardless of what Trump did in office, I think, you know, that was already baked into the cake. Uh, as far as his policies, I don't like his rhetoric for sure on trade. And then, you know, we can talk about some of the particulars. The the, the corporate t tax cut, though, I think was a very uh, pro-growth move. I think even a lot of free market economists it surprises me how little credence they give to that or how they don't think that's a big deal. Both politically, it was kind of amazing that they got that through just be, you know, because of the optics of it, but but also in terms of the significant, that was a very big move. I mean, supply side type economists have been saying for years, you know, the US has one of the highest corporate income tax rates in the world. And now, you know, they've really made uh, some significant moves on that. So the problem now is unfortunately, it's kind of hard to disentangle. Like under Obama, everything was just bad. And so then when there was, you know, the lackluster, you know, one of the like sl most sluggish recoveries in U.S. history, if not the slowest, you know, you could just say, yeah, see, I told you so. Whereas here it's a little bit hard, you know, so I'm against protectionism, but I can understand people saying, well, oh, the economy's doing fine. You idiots were warning us. And, I'm, and I could say, well, I think it's because the corporate tax cut. And then likewise, the people, you know, I thought the corporate tax cut was going to be huge. And now people can say, well, or if something, you know, something if it crashes, they can say, oh, Murphy, you said that corporate tax cut. And I go, yeah, but that's because of the Fed. So <laughs> unfortunately, everyone's going to be right. Paul Krugman's going to be right no matter what happens. Oh no, no, that that makes my ears burn, <laughs> even to think, even by accident. Okay, so 
let's um, go over the Austrian theory of the business cycle. It's been quite a while since I've done a show on that. And there is this general perception, as you know, Bob, that, well, you know, these booms and busts is just part of the roller coaster ride of the free market. And I've sort of pointed out, yeah, people get sick, people get better. But if the whole town gets sick at once, you kind of want to look at the water supply, maybe the food supply. There's something that's in common. And I've never understood how people can imagine that an entire complex economy with hundreds of millions of people could suddenly go up and down at the same time, unless you start looking at what's in common, like money supply, interest rates, and so on. So the Austrians, I think, have the answer regarding the business cycle. So I wonder if you could step people through how it works. Sure, and I, I like your analogy there because that's exactly right. That and it, it, this isn't, um, you know, like a, a free market economist versus Keynesian interventionist divide. Even lots of people who like are fans of Milton Friedman, or whatever, I've heard them say things along the lines of, "Well, yeah, you got to have innovation, and if you want to have, you know, free enterprise, business cycles are the price we pay." And, and no, that's not correct, you know. And so, um, as you say, it, it is weird. So obviously, any particular business, any entrepreneur might make a bad forecast. They might you know, open up their business and then the consumer demand's not there and they go out of business. They go bankrupt. That's normal. But you're right. The thing that we have to explain as economists is why are these clusters of mistakes? Why does it seem like there's alternating periods where business in general seems to be booming? Lots of businesses all seem to be you know, doing well. And then all of a sudden it flips so that in general business is bad. But yeah, there could be a few outliers, but it just you're right. It doesn't seem like it's a randomly distributed thing. It seems like it comes in these huge cyclical patterns. So uh, the Austrians, this was originally formulated by Ludwig von Mises uh, in his work, the theory of what we translate as the theory of money and credit. And then, of course, Friedrich Hayek helped elaborate. And that's one of the major reasons Hayek won the Nobel Prize. Mises says it's because of the banking system that for various reasons, which we can get into in a minute if you want, that the banking system is able to push interest rates artificially low by flooding the market with credit that's not really backed up by genuine saving. Oh, so, wait, wait, hold yeah. on for a sec. Okay. Because when you say the banking system, most people gravitate towards the private banking system, to which point they would say, well, they can't create their own money. They don't control interest rates directly. Okay, so, and this gets subtle. So, you know, Mises' original theory came out, what, 1912, right? So that was before the U.S. had a central bank, or at least before the Fed, they, they had had the you know, um, national banks. So what happens, and this, this brings up the issue of what's called fractional reserve banking. And so there is a sense in which even private sector banks, if they're allowed to, you know, you, you give $1,000 into your checking account deposit, and then if they're allowed to lend out some of that to other people, there's a sense in which you know, your original $1,000 deposit, and you think you've got $1,000 in there, but yet if other people are walking around with the money that the bank lent out, part of which was was your reserves, now the community as a whole thinks they have more in checking account balances than your $1,000 savings actually is backing up. And Especially so that, if they're lending out multiples of your savings, right? Right, yeah. yeah. So people may re dim, dimly remember from their you know horrible college classes on this stuff that, yeah, there's the multiplier in the banking system. So, and, and this is, you know, some Austrians, you know, we, we quibble about this stuff. This is actually a huge area of disagreement. But this is the, the standard Misesian story was saying, if you think that what the banking system does when things are well-functioning is channel legitimate savings into loans to productive enterprise, the interest rate is the price sort of signaling the scarcity. And so if the banking system, in a sense, is allowed to lend more than has been genuinely saved by creating money, then there's a mismatch there. 
Now, well, sorry, hang on. And, and I've I've gone back and forth on this as well because to me, if you put your money in a bank and your contract with the bank is don't ever lend out more than you have in the bank. Okay, then they'll lend out a little bit based upon people's uncertain needs for liquidity in the moment. But if you go to a bank that says, we lend out 20 times the amount of money that's in your bank account, well, you're going to get potentially a huge gain. You may also get potentially a huge loss. So to me, you know, fractional reserve banking is just a matter of risk tolerance. Is it mad money? Can you handle the loss? Do you want to have the high returns? Or do you want something more conservative? And in a free market, I think banks would offer a variety of those options. Okay, yeah. So the the way so again, this gets really nuanced. In a totally free market, you're right. I think a lot of this would just be a red herring because um I think normal market mechanisms, as you say, would constrain banks and so they wouldn't be able to engage in, in fraction reserve banking to the degree they are allowed to under a heavily regulated system. So 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 that's you know, again, and that's fine. So clearly in modern times with central banks, I mean, think about it. Even the official rationale for why did we need why did the Federal Reserve get created? It was to be a lender of last resort, right? Because they don't, you know, when there's a crisis, we don't want people dependent on J.P. Morgan's good graces. We want a public, you know, public institution. So clearly, whatever that you know, the issue might be about how would banking work in a totally free market? Clearly, under the heavily regulated system with a cartel enforcement and then a central bank there willing to bail people out when they get caught with their pants down, that clearly exacerbates. This you know this notion of fraction reserve banking beyond the margin that would happen in a genuinely free market, and so well, and and most people, I think, I know that I would, maybe you uh-huh. would as well, Bob, but most people would want uh, a banking executive board to lose their houses if the bank went bankrupt first. You know, like they would, they, right. they would be living under a bridge in a box. They'd be living in a, in a rusty old car because at the moment, of course, with this corporate shield and people think the corporation is somehow part of the free market other than another status invention that allows people to hoover money out of a business enterprise without exposing their personal assets to risk of loss if the enterprise goes tits up. And so I would want that sort of protection as well. And that used to be the case in the 19th century. If a bank went bust, the first thing they do is, is take the houses of the bank board members. And that's kind of been uh, removed to some degree by this corporate shield. Yeah, I, I agree with that entirely. Um, in general, the move towards debt and away from equity financing is, is part, a partly a phenomenon or a symptom of what we're talking about here, these artificially low interest rates. Another thing, this is just recent, There, I don't know if this is on your radar, but there was this financial institution called The Narrow Bank. Like, so they go by TNB and their business model, because right now the Federal Reserve, if commercial banks keep their money parked at the Fed, the Fed gives them interest on reserves, and that is a privilege that only qualified financial institutions like like banks can do. Like you can't just go leave your money on deposit in the Fed and get this guaranteed interest payment. So this thing called the narrow bank, their business plan was to say, okay, we'll be a regular bank, and we'll just take our customers' deposits with us and park them at the Fed, and we'll just pass along the interest. So sort of you know have everyone be able to enjoy it. And imagine you're not going to believe this. I hope you're well, you're not sitting down. You should be because the Fed did not approve that charter. <laughs> the Fed said no, and and the thing is, and it can't wait. Be that profits it, might be flowing to regular yeah. folk. I'm sorry, we really right. can't have that. It's and only it for the elites. And the thing is, it can't be that there's some kind of riskiness involved because this would be literally the safest thing imaginable. This would be 100% reserve banking, where you know you put your money with. The, in other words, they weren't going to do anything else. This was going to be an entity that solely took customer deposits, parked them at the Fed, and just flowed through the interest. That's the only thing on their books. So your money would be absolutely safe, and you know, unless the Fed just decided to, to dissolve itself, and yet the Fed wouldn't approve that. So you would think, gee, in this environment of 
wanting financial stability and you know wanting to have capital requirements and we don't want another too big to fail having this option of everyone enjoying these nope so obviously oh can you imagine i mean to to look in the mirror and say i'm a business genius because i can borrow money from the fed at a 2.25 percent i can park it in another account get three percent Woohoo! i'm a business genius it's like that's not even simple math yeah, so it's uh, – and again, obviously, you and I know that the real reason is because right now the subsidies they're giving – I mean, in, in case people don't don't realize this, I mean, the, the, the Fed right now is giving many tens of billions of dollars just in interest payments per year to com- the commercial banking system. That was That's new. That's something that was instituted in uh, October of 2008 right after the crisis. You know, they had their rationale and their jargon for why they were doing it, but the point is – they're literally giving tens of billions of dollars a year right now to the commercial banks, just an explicit payment saying, hey, don't lend your money out to customers. Keep it parked <laughs> with us. So, I mean, it, the whole thing, and as interest rates rise, that gets more and more expensive to do. So clearly, yeah, they don't want more people in on that little uh, nice little cozy relationship. Well, and this was the big tragedy of 07, 08, was that the Federal Reserve and the government as a whole had a huge mandate for uh, banks to lend to low-income people regardless of the future. And then when that – because this is the question. People say, oh, well, these credit default swaps and these bundled mortgage securities, boy, a lot of people on Wall Street made really bad decisions at the same time. It's like that's a clue. That's a clue that something beyond their particular purview is going on. And yeah, there was this mandate to try and get as many low-income people into houses as, as humanly possible. And then when interest rates ticked up, variable rate mortgages kicked in, people couldn't afford it, and the whole thing went supernova. But that's not a free market situation. Do you think that banks just woke up one day and said, wow, we've had hundreds and hundreds of years of figuring out who's good at paying back money that we lend to them, but we're just going to throw all of that out of the window. And it's like, that didn't happen. There was a mandate that was going on. Right. Um, and there's a, a documentary coming out uh, that Tom Woods was involved with um, by J- this guy, Jimmy Morrison, called I think it's called The Bubble. He might be breaking up into two parts now. And, and I've seen a you know, preview of this recently. He interviewed me and Peter Schiff and guys like that. But he's got great quotes in the beginning, like from people like George W. Bush and Barney Frank and others in the early 2000s, patting themselves on the back. You know, I think Obama might be involved, too, but I'm not sure about that. But and they're they're congratulating themselves, saying, you know, we're going to promote the, the dream of home ownership, you know, and and they're so happy at that how they're, you know, through the Community Reinvestment Act and uh, the artificially low interest rates and Fannie and Freddie and all those things, the whole goal was to get banks to give mortgages to people who otherwise wouldn't qualify. So you can't have it both ways. It can't be that the government's pat itself on the back and then five years later saying, gee, how come all these people got mortgages? who in retrospect were not good at credit risk. It's like, well, that was the whole rationale of your program. It's, well, it's, and that's a, it's not that gotta, it was unintended. Yeah. You've got to admire the truth in advertising, right? You have to admire yeah. the truth in advertising, calling it the dream of home ownership. Because one thing that we understand about dreams every single morning is you wake up and they ain't real. Right. So that's the thing. It wasn't merely that it was an unintended consequence. That was the whole rationale. And so for them, people will say, oh, it's a free market. I mean, that's that's kind of great. And, and so, in general, back to your earlier question. So, the Austrian story is that these artificially low interest rates caused by credit expansion, you know, there's a mismatch that the interest rate does not truly reflect the available supply of savings available for borrowing. That, it, you know, the, the credit expansion, there, there's money created that really isn't justified by saving. And so, that's going to cause a, a problem, right? The interest rate is a price, it has a, a, a function to serve. Just like if the government somehow made crude oil prices $5 a, a barrel. That wouldn't be doing any favors. That would be misallocating it, right? Because that's not the right price. So if interest rates are artificially low, something screwy happens. And in the Austrian story, 
it causes an unsustainable boom. And then when rates spike later on, everybody realizes, oh, that's that's you know, I, I made two two grandiose of, of investments, and a, a lot of entrepreneurs at the same time are trying to scale back. And so that's what we we perceive as a recession. Well, and that's the one thing that, as far as I understand it, Bob, only the Austrian school gets right, which is why does it happen in the B2B or the business sector first, and then the recession hits the um, uh, more personal or or, uh, business-to-consumer market first? Like, why is it that businesses, in terms of capital investment and expansion, get things wrong with regards to wrong interest rate signals? Why does it happen to business first and only then to the general consumer? As far as I know, the Austrian school is the only school with a compelling explanation for that repetitive phenomenon. Yeah, I agree. And um, and just for, you know, in case your listeners don't know that this is, even though the Austrians do, um, especially Mises and Rothbard, they're, they're very uh, skeptical of you know, empirical studies, like they're more in terms of a priori uh, theorizing, Still, don't misunderstand. In terms of just empirical, like what would the signature or the pattern in the data look like? It lines up with the Austrian survey. Like some of my favorite essays going against Paul Krugman were when he was saying after the 2008 crisis, well, gee, if this was a story about a housing boom and bust and reallocation, we would see this. And so I would go and look at the data and say, yeah, that is that is what we see. <laughs> you know, your story about it's just people are afraid to spend. You would think retail would fall off a cliff. And then it would percolate back. But no, it's as you say, Stefan, it's the other way around. It's like capital good investments, those industries take a huge hit in retail and service sector kind of just takes a smaller hit. So the story lines up very well with the Austrian approach, whereas if it's just a hey, people are afraid to spend and so the economy kind of shrinks, that doesn't line up with the particular sectoral adjustments that we see. Well, yeah. So, I mean, just of course, everybody knows this, but interest rates being the price of money and a subject to the same supply and demand, at least in a free market, as any other good or service. So if you have a whole bunch of money that people are saving, then the banks have a lot to lend out. And to incentivize, they have to lower the price of interest, right? Because they have an excess of supply of capital. So they have to lower the price of interest. So when interest rates are low, that means there's a lot of deferred spending going on. So businesses want to use that time to ramp up for additional production because they know that people are going to start spending sooner or later. But if interest rates are artificially low, if they're kept artificially low and it doesn't represent an accumulation of savings or deferred spending, then the businesses start building for an expansion that never comes. And that's why it hits the business sector first and then flows back into the, um, into the personal sector. Right. That's exactly right. So especially for your listeners who you know understand like how you would reckon like the present value of a flow of, uh, you know, cash flow stream, you know that the higher the, the discount rate you use, the higher the interest rate, that means future dollars aren't worth as much today. OK. And so, yes, the interest rate, if you're an entrepreneur and you're like, OK, we're thinking about building an apartment complex, you know, it's going to have like a 30, 40 year horizon in terms of us planning. We're going to spend 10 million dollars you know, this year building the thing. And then over the next 40 years, what kind of rental return do we think we can get? The interest rate is a huge component in your decision whether to go forward with that or not. Whereas if you're just you know, going to put up a hot dog stand for the next three weeks, the interest rate's not really a big deal. So, the, so yes, in a simple sort of Keynesian macro model, the, the interest rate at best is just something that like a, a break or a gas pedal on total spending. Whereas in a more sophisticated framework where you have long-term projects versus short-term the interest rate, it doesn't, a low interest rate doesn't just stimulate investment. It particularly stimulates long-term projects. And so in the Austrian story, that's why an artificially low interest rate, it sets in motion long-term projects. And so that's why you can get entrepreneurs 
you know, they might start something and then when the, the economy flips, now all of a sudden they've got a half finished project and they have to decide, do we continue? Do we just lay people off? So in a, in a more simplistic Keynesian story where it's just up, oh, there's aggregate demand and that's it. You know, it, you can't even get the, those nuances. It doesn't even make sense to say stuff got went into long term projects. So we're trying to explain like the housing bubble. I mean, housing and, and real estate in general, those are very long term projects. And that's why an artificially low interest rate would stimulate them in particular. Right. And it's often struck me, Bob, if you can imagine some basketball game occurring and there's some guy on the sidelines who's got a gravity dial and like they mm. crank the gravity up to triple and then they move it down to like one sixth of Earth's gravity like moon. And they just can you imagine trying to play that game, trying to do your shots, trying to pass, not knowing what the gravity was going to be over the next five minutes or the next 30 seconds or the next three seconds. You get dialing it up and down, you got people falling over the place. It would be kind of a weird comedy. But that's kind of what it's like being an entrepreneur with a central bank and a politically driven set of interest rates and a politically driven set of uh, money creation policies, you really don't know what's coming down the road. And you're trying to play this game, but man, half the time the basketball goes up your nose, half the time you pass it, the gravity dials down, it sails way over, the other half of time it lands on your toes. It's really tough to plan with people monkeying with foundational economic signals like this. Yeah, and beyond that too, it's you know because the standard objection to the Austrian story is, oh, I thought you guys think investors are rational or what? You know what? What you you economists know the Fed's doing this, but all the other people in real estate were idiots. And part of the explanation is it's not a monolithic thing. Like there are some people who are relatively new who just you know they had never lived through a major boom bust cycle before, and so gee, the, and also it's the kind of thing if the Fed's handing out money at ridiculously low rates and your competitors are taking it. Yeah, you can play the long game and sit back and let them make super high profits while you kind of just tread water. But the only way that's going to pay off is once the bust happens, they should be allowed to fail. But if they get rescued, well, then you're just the sucker because you didn't earn money during the, you know, the, the heady boom years. And then they didn't go bust later. So you have nothing to show for it, you know, to your to the people investing in your hedge fund or whatever. So there's a lot of reasons that yeah, the, the stimulus on the front end and then all the bailouts are the exact wrong thing to do. You know, it's a profit and loss system. If the people who lost a bunch of money aren't allowed to fail, then all the incentives are screwed up. And that's something I think that's quite confusing for people uh, around the 0708 crash, you know, when was it immediately 600 billion bucks were pumped into various institutions. And it's been trillions of dollars, I think, since if I've got my math right. And the question is, OK, why can't they fail? What is the problem? I understand with the FDIC that they've got to guarantee people's bank accounts, so you might as well prop up the bank rather than pay off everyone's bank accounts because it's just easier. But a lot of these institutions that were failing were investments, uh, investment places that didn't have FDIC guarantees. I mean, it's hard to guess what happened with, with Paulson and Bush and then Paulson and Obama where it's like, hey, nice economy you got here. Be a real shame if something happened to it. What do you think the story was about what was going to happen without the bailout? I mean, we all know that it would have been a crater, but then there would have been new growth that would have been sustainable. What do you think was told to people that got the, the, the wallet books open to that degree? Sure. So, yes, in, the, in September and early October going into the TARP, remember – Congress originally did, voted against TARP, you know, because their constituents were again. I don't remember the numbers were, but the phone calls were heavily against it. People were like, "No, you're not bailing me out. I, you know, I'm underwater on my mortgage. Where's my check? Where's my bailout? Forget that, you know." And and they voted no. And then I don't know what was said behind closed doors, but then all of a sudden they held another vote and it squeaked through. Um, and so yeah, Paulson 
the story is he literally got down on one knee and was begging Pelosi saying, you know, we need this. So, yeah, they were telling people that your ATM's not going to work next week if we don't approve of this thing. And they were like with the AIG bailout. So the Fed came in, I think it was an $85 billion infusion into the and AIG, of course, is the big insurance company. And so people were led to believe my life insurance policy is not going to be funded. And that was completely a lie that AIG, it was like its parent company that was doing these, you know, credit default swaps that was in trouble. The money backing up, you know, individual life insurance policies that was in segregated accounts, regulated at the state level. Obviously, not that I'm a huge fan of state regulation, but the point is, those that money was segregated. The AIG parent, if they had just been allowed to fail, everybody's life insurance policy would have been fine. And the same thing too. In general, I mean, when a regular company corporation goes bankrupt, it's not the end of the world. You you you, you know you figure out okay, what are the net assets? And then there's bankruptcy court, and they pay off the creditors in terms of you know what what you know where they stand in the queue, and if there's anything left over, and the shareholders you know take the hit, and the workers get laid off, but they get reabsorbed elsewhere by companies that have a better business model that are meeting the needs of consumers. So yeah, it would have been bad, but the point is, we didn't avoid that crisis. All they did was kick the can down the road. So we're still going to have that day of reckoning. It's just going to be much bigger now. So there's that element as well. But yeah, the idea that the whole financial system was going to just implode if they didn't come in and bail people out. That's crazy. The last thing I'll say is if they had wanted, you know, if it, they were saying, oh, well, the mortgage market and hey, we just want to, we have to bail out Wall Street to save Main Street. That was one of the slogans. But no, like I said, so one thing is they could have just given checks to people who were underwater. That would have saved them more, but they didn't do that. Instead, they were spending hundreds of billions on mortgage-backed securities. So that showed that was, you know, that was a farce. But also, remember, in October of 2008, the Fed literally started paying commercial banks to not make loans to people. Okay, I mean, they didn't use that language to describe it. That might have a lot, but that's what it was calling paying interest on reserves. So one way of thinking about what is the event, they were literally paying commercial banks saying, we don't want you to lend this money out. Keep it parked with us. So clearly, this was not about keeping the lending juices flowing so the average people could still get loan. That's not at all what was happening. This was clearly their investment banker buddies screwed up and they were about to lose billions and the Fed came up with a way to bail them all out. Well, and this is the really frustrating thing as well. These guys were really playing some risky poker. I mean, some of these institutions were lending out like 30 to 1. I mean, you're lending out 30 to 1, you get a 3% market shift, you are completely wiped out. And so they were really doing a lot of heavy risk. And hey, you know, sometimes that risk pays off. And sometimes it doesn't. And that's sort of the whole point. And the, pl- the, the, the way it plays out is one of these horrible examples of the seen versus the unseen, you know, Bastiat's old idea. Because, of course, the people who get to keep their jobs because of the government bailouts are like, woohoo, love these government bailouts. They're great. The people who get to keep their life savings uh, at the top. But, of course, all the people who otherwise would have had jobs, all of the businesses that weren't created, all of the new things that didn't come into being, those fabled jetpacks that I'm still waiting for, nobody knows that that didn't happen. Nobody has a direct visceral experience of what was not brought into being. And that mismatch of incentives is one of the reasons why state control of the economy tends to be so corrupting for everyone. Right. And, you know, and, I, and after the fact, I went and talked. So I, I hope I'm not coming off as if I'm saying, oh, it was all the government and private sector were angels. No, you're right. There were people in the private sector that were completely reckless, were very short sighted. Um, and I'm sure there was a lot of outright fraud that was was happening, like, you know, those things called liar loans, where part of what was going on is, yeah, commercial banks were originating mortgages, knowing full well the recipient, you know, didn't have a job or was lying about his income because they were able to sell it off to Wall Street. But still, you got to ask, 
somewhere along the chain, someone was doing something stupid. Why was that process and the ratings agencies were involved? And, and so, but ultimately, and I talked to people afterwards, like people at major investment banks where, you know, the, the physics PhDs down the hall were given a AAA rating to these, you know, these derivative, um, uh, you know, credit default swaps or, or things like that. And, and part of it, he says, those things were so complex, we didn't even know what they were. They were using computer models to evaluate them. But one guy said something along the lines to me of, we kind of knew that, look at all the big banks were into this stuff. And we knew if there was a meltdown, the Fed was going to come in and not let that happen. And, and there was precedent for that. You know, the ah. Fed had the Fed had done stuff, you know, the, the Fed had come, they called it the Greenspan put, right? That, you know, when there was a big financial thing. And so, you know, the plunge protection team, there's all these fancy names you want to call it. And so, yeah, and they, and they were right in that respect. So it's not that it was like this completely Machiavellian calculation. There was a lot of arrogance and hubris involved and they thought, oh no, you know, this was going to go on, who cares? But ultimately, if somebody did raise the question, you know, we're kind of levered here, they would say, well, no, but the kind of scenario you're worried about, it's not just that we would go down, everybody would go down and the Fed's not going to let that happen. And they were right. So you can't even say they were wrong. I mean, you know, it was immoral, but they weren't wrong in what their in what their estimate was. So I, yeah, I, you, it, you, whatever the issue is, you can't blame that on the free market. That's crazy. Right. Now, the other thing too is that when you do start to prop up these companies with government money, government power, government protection, you do end up with this, you know, dead company, walking zombie company, company scenario, which seems to be the case in. Japan, where they kind of had a freeze time spell, you know, everyone who's of this particular size in 1990 can now get the same size forever. And then you end up with this very strange economy, like this twilight zone, where there just isn't that creative destruction that is the source of new wealth. Yeah, you're right. And what's funny, too, just on that point is a lot of the Keynesians, when people like me were arguing against the huge rounds of QE and the trillion dollar plus deficits under the Obama years and stuff, they were saying, hey, this is not a good idea. And people were saying, like, well, no, but Japan's been doing that for 20 years and they, you know, and they've and they've just been stuck in a rut. So it hasn't caused, you know, hyperinflation over there. So on the one hand, you're right, it didn't cause hyperinflation, but also it's like, right, so we could also have a, a lost decade just like Japan did. You know what I mean? So it's it was weird to me that Keynesians were saying, no, Japan has been trying our policies for 20 years and so far it hasn't worked, but it proves it's not, you know, the end of the world either. And so it was just a weird, you know, you think they would point to a success story. Well, um, and but, Japan as a whole is is actually physically dying off. And I'm not saying it's all to do with economics, but it's right. also not unrelated to economics right. when you have a, what is it, they're selling more elderly diapers now than babies' diapers, and they're projected like within 80 years, there's going to be like nobody left in Japan except one guy who's really old and squinting at his anime. And so the <laughs> idea that you can just do a freeze time spell on an entire economy without it having massive cultural, social, familial ramifications to me is a complete disaster. And of course, what are they? 220, 240% of GDP is their national debt. I mean, come on, that, that's, that can't be a sane situation. Right. Yeah. I don't know the exact number, but it, it is way up there. So yeah, when you just look at some of the numbers of them, it, it is amazing. And again, if, if they, if, as you say, if they were a vibrant, booming economy and they had you know great prospects for the future, that would be one thing, but it's not. Everyone realizes it's been a shell for 20 plus years now and it's just caught in this rut. So yes, it hasn't you know imploded per, per se, but it's certainly not a success story. So it's just weird to me that people are saying, hey, well, they're doing it over there. Why don't we do the same policies over here? Why would you want to emulate that? Now, for the next part of the conversation, I'm going to have to charge you enormously to respond because we're going to talk about tariffs. So um, there is an argument from libertarian circles, which I fully understand, and I've 
I mean, a friend of mine who's an economist was telling me this like 20 years ago. And the argument goes something like this. Let's say Japan comes up with a cure for AIDS and America comes up with a cure for cancer. But Japan won't let America's cure for cancer be sold in Japan. Does that mean that America should not accept the cure for AIDS from Japan? It's like, well, of course you should, right? Because at least then you'll be healing some people. So this idea that even if other people have restrictive tariff walls, you should keep your tariffs low to stimulate trade and get the benefit and blah, blah, blah. I get all of that. But at the same time, if you don't bring anything to the negotiating table, I have no idea how you're going to get other countries to lower their tariffs. Because other countries, I mean, Canadian Milk Board and, and wheat subsidies and all that's crazy stuff that goes on dairy-wise in Canada. So how are you going to get Canada to lower its trades unless you're going to bring a big stick of, oh, well, there's going to be tariff retaliation unless you lower your tariff. So I get the argument from the economic standpoint, but from the pure, raw, Machiavellian negotiating standpoint, if you ain't sitting down with a stick and a carrot, I'm not sure how the tariffs are ever going to get lowered. Okay, so yeah, I, I don't have a problem with, with that perspective. My own, I guess my problem with like the way Trump has been conducting it is when he then like explains his thinking, like, oh, a trade war is easy to win, that kind of stuff. It, again, if it's all a show to make the other people think, oh, this guy's crazy and he's going to stick to his gun, fair enough. But if that's really the way he's thinking through, then no. So I guess what I'm saying is it doesn't sound to me like Trump is saying, I fully agree that if we put a tariff in place, that's going to make our people poorer. But I got to risk, you know, it's kind of like we're going into a bank and saying, I'm strapped with explosives and I'm going to kill us all unless you give me the money. If you know, that that's not necessarily an irrational thing to do as long as the bank teller, you know, backs down and gives you the money. Then okay, and even if it's just like a bunch of smotty tubes <laughs> painted green or something and you've got yeah. nothing. Right. So so I'm saying but it, some of Trump's rhetoric, it doesn't sound to me like he's realizing he's threatening to impoverish Americans further in the hopes that at the end goal. But on the other hand, he does, you know, have quick lines about, hey, if we want to go to zero tariffs, I'm ready. And then they're afraid to call his bluff. What I for sure will say, it's amazing to me all of a sudden how Nancy Pelosi is a huge fan of David Ricardo. Like all of a sudden, all these Democrats. <laughs> now, that is not a sentence I was expecting to hear today, Bob. I'll be straight up with you. On my list right. of things Bob Murphy's going to yeah. say, that was not on them. But please, illuminate me. Right. Because in other words, once Trump was you know arguing against free trade as this panacea, all of a sudden these Democrats are, every economist knows, blah, 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 blah. Whereas, you know, when, you know, if it was a Republican or even when it was Obama, this, you know, the most progressive left wing Democrats were certainly against trade deals because all oh, the effect on the environment or it's going to hurt manufacturing. So they were saying very Trumpian things back then. But now since it's Donald Trump, now all of a sudden they're just hiding behind textbook economics. So my thing is I want Trump to come out attacking the gold standard so that Dianne Feinstein all of a sudden is in favor of the gold standard. <laughs> she becomes a, a rather ancient gold bug. Wizened right, right. and blue, hard, blue island. Hard, hard money, Diane. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So with regards to where the American economy is right now, I mean, it's been a Franken economy for quite some time with the vital parts of the free market keeping alive the, um, the remnants of the status system. I mean, it's always struck me, you know, like the Atlas Shrugged argument that there was this, sorry, it's a spoiler, but it's been, what, 60 years, I think we can, we can handle it, right? That there's this device that keeps the status system alive, which then they don't produce, uh, the, um, the electromagnetic machine or whatever. It's in the 20th century motor company. It's always kind of struck me that computers are kind of like that. The computers were the things that allow this system to continue on for another couple decades, but uh, even the end run of computers seems to have been achieved in that I think just about every ounce of uh, progress has been extracted from computerization for the foreseeable future. 
And so the next big thing doesn't seem to be coming along. So the bill may finally be coming due for all of this mad spending of really the last uh, couple of generations. Now, Trump, I think, is coming in and, you know, with the tax cuts and so on, I think what he's trying to do is shift people from relying on government money to paying taxes. Because if you're receiving government money, you don't really care about taxes because you ain't paying any. In fact, you might want taxes to be higher because then there's more of a pool for you to get paid from. But once you shift from receiving government benefits to paying taxes, you have an investment into lower taxes. You want you, you don't mind welfare being cut because it's costing you rather than benefiting you. And that shift of trying to get people off government dependence and into the workforce may be part of what's going on because it seems almost impossible to cut government spending directly. You can only hope to shift the demographics. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, and there and there was, you know, we have like empirical evidence that during the, you know, during the recovery, the recovery from the recession, when they stopped extending unemployment benefits, all of a sudden those people found jobs. You know, it, it wasn't 100 percent, but I mean, I mean, it, it's it's not a cliche or it's not it's not too simplistic to say unemployment benefits. You're literally paying people to not find work. OK, now, you know, and it's it's not to pass judgment on those people. And of course, the, the economy is awful. And there's a lot of government restrictions in place. So it's not a, a pure level playing field. It's not a pure meritocracy. But nonetheless, I mean, if you want to if you want more of something, you subsidize it. So the federal government's paying, give, sending people checks on the condition that you don't have work. You shouldn't be shocked when people don't, you know, when they take longer looking for, you know, oh, this job's beneath me. I'm going to keep looking. Oh, what is it they check, see that there's yeah. this huge spike? You know, like if you've got a year and a half of unemployment benefits, you know, a year and a half minus three days. Oh, man, I got to get a job. You <laughs> work 12 hours a day to get right. a job. It's like, well, the previous time, well, why would you have the same incentive? You wouldn't. Right. And, and so, like I said, that's not that's not merely a talking point. I mean, they, we can document that, that when they stopped extending it, then all of a sudden, you know, you saw a lot of people finding work. Um, so there's that element, and and I think you're right. Trump also, he has done really well from my perspective on energy issues. Okay, so in other words, the, making you know very strong claims during the campaign, and then coming in and just like people I knew in libertarian circles who were experts on energy policy were getting pretty high level appointments in the Trump administration. People that I would have assumed would be way too radical to get government work. You know what I mean? Like they would have had a paper trail. They're too libertarian. And they were getting hired, and I was like p- very pleasantly surprised. You know him, pu- you know pulling out of Paris, just the the clean so called clean power plan, all these things where people were going just ballistic, and he didn't care. You know he was like so they can call him names, and so that, I guess that's the benefit of when people have called you every name in the book. That, that, <laughs> They're out know, of ammo. Yeah, that, it's that, just that, blanks. That it's okay, we can keep yeah. going so, forward. So on that issue, I think it's great. I mean, also too, you mentioned the computer stuff. I think partly the reason the economy didn't respond as negatively, you know, to the stuff that happened on the Obama years, for example, just look at U.S. crude and natural gas output, you know, so-called fracking boom. Some of that, I think, is because of low interest rates that, you know, stimulated, but it is amazing. It used to be everyone's like, oh, we got to have, you know, uh, electric cars because we're running out of oil. And now the U.S. is, you know, it's one, it's the leading producer in the world again, right? So, and this was just something that happened and, you know, the left-wing people warning about, peak oil, you, you, they just move their talking points. Oh, well, it's climate change now. We got to keep it in the ground as opposed to, well, wait a minute, you were totally wrong. You, you know, you didn't predict this 10 years ago. So I think that, that yes, there is, that, that Trump's instincts on a lot of this stuff are great. And he knows if we just get the government out of the way and unleash everybody's potential, we could easily grow out of this. 
So yeah, well, America did. Uh, America did achieve energy independence. I think just over the last couple of months, according to some statistics, that's a huge deal, and it's not just a huge deal for the economy. It's a huge deal for foreign policy because if you achieve more energy independence, particularly oil independence, then hey, you're not so dependent on the Middle East and the horrible Islamic theocracies that keep waging war and, and causing terrorist attacks and so on. I think that's actually a pretty. Uh, it's a pretty good deal. I don't mind if some environmentalists get too upset if we stop pumping money into the blood-soaked hands of theocrats overseas. Yeah, exactly. That it's just all around that the ostensible, you know, obviously you and I have very strong views on, on you know, U.S. Army action and so forth. But yeah, even the ostensible justification for less goes away if, and again, Canada and Mexico also have just huge stockpiles of coal and oil. If, if the U.S. government allowed offshore oil exploration, I mean, there, it's, it's not this, you know, this idea that, oh, my gosh, the Earth's running out of oil and everything. That is so completely wrong from a technological standpoint. It's all regulatory barriers that are in place. So, th- so certainly that's true. And even as you say, these demographic trends, it's if the government would just hold their spending, these things would be fine. If they could just start privatizing, letting people opt out of Social Security and so on, that would uh, all ultimately you could grow out of it. The problem is, though, that right now the trajectory we're on, it, it will take massive changes. But again, you know, Trump kind of showing... I, I wouldn't have thought that massive corporate income tax cut would have been politically possible, but I was wrong. You know, the, the stuff, you know, like I say Trump doing with the Paris Accords and these things, I would have thought a Republican would be too afraid. You know, he would just want to actually tweak things. And, you know, so it's it's showing a lot of things are, are possible that would not have been possible politically in the last cycle. So certainly these things, these pr- problems are solvable. But but, yeah, it will take a pretty radical shift in current policy. It's a funny thing, too, because I'm sure you remember, as, as I too, Bob, back in the days when Mitt Romney said, corporations are people. And everybody just went completely <laughs> insane. Like, there are two kinds of human, there are two kinds of sentient creatures in the world today. There's carbon-based bipeds like you and I, and then there's the evil alien overlords called corporations who are inhuman. And like, no, they are people. They're just pieces of paper which do nothing and they represent people. If you cut corporate taxes... Corporations have more money to invest. They have more money to hire people. It is actually in some ways a better tax cut because it produces more sustainable things rather than just people going out and buying flat screen TVs, which is fine. But, you know, they're consumer goods that lose value rather than capital investments that gain value. So they're not going to do much to make you wealthier. They make you happier, maybe, but they won't make you much wealthier. And the fact that these corporate tax cuts got through uh, is really quite uh, astounding because, of course, for the leftists, the new Satan are the corporations and the idea that you would get tax cuts for them, the complete separation of them from the people that they actually hire and invest in and so on. uh, It was an amazing moment. Yeah. And also, for the benefit of your listeners who might not know, in terms of like standard, pretty buttoned down economic analysis of tax policy, you get the most bang for your buck by cutting corporate taxes. Like what you're trying to do is, you know, okay, we have a trillion dollars to spend on reducing taxes. What should we do if we want to promote GDP growth and employment growth? And actually from a supply side, start cutting corporate taxes because what that's ultimately doing is cutting taxes on, on saving, right? Because a corporation, you know, its income is what is, is the, the net profit of the firm. So it's like a, a return on the investment that the shareholders put into the corporation. And so that's why other things equal cutting a corporate income tax is kind of like cutting a tax on saving as opposed to just a generic personal income tax. So, you know, morality, like I, if, if, if they had told me we, we're going to spend this much money in the sense of giving money back to taxpayers, how should we design it? 
I probably would have wanted more going to into, you know middle and lower class households just because you know they're struggling the most. But in terms of what you're trying to do is jumpstart standard economic growth. Yeah, cutting the corporate income tax, even according to standard. This isn't like some right wing talking point. Standard, you know, peer reviewed journal research says corporate income taxes are particularly destructive because it's like taxing savings. And that's the worst thing you want to do for long term growth. Right. And boy, I mean, as far as you you pointing out, I'm glad you're bringing that up. The lower incomes uh, in America, like the bottom, say, quintile. Whew. Man, they are struggling and a half. I mean, you've, you've seen the studies, I'm sure, as well as I have, like vast proportions of American households have like less than $500 in the bank at any given time, you know, like one flat tire uh, and you're living under a bridge. And this is something that I think is underrepresented in terms of discussions. Or if it is represented, it's like, well, this is capitalism. They exploit the poor. And it's like, yeah, because mm-hmm. governments never exploit the poor. They never offer people something for free uh, in return for votes. Never happens in government. But the amount of hurt and economic stress and pain and anxiety uh, among the bottom 20 to 25% of Americans, uh, you could really scale that up to about 40% for a lot of people. It is really a, a lot of pain out there. And I think the inability of, say, the Hillary campaign to recognize that and the fact that Trump did get it, uh, I think was hugely instrumental in 2016. And I think it's also going to be pretty instrumental in 2020 or maybe even the midterms. There is a lot of pain out there and a lot of people who feel, you know, the bottom 20 rungs on the ladder just don't exist anymore. Yeah, that's right. And also, too, I think even sometimes some libertarians are are naive about this where they'll say things like, you know, oh, like oh, Obama, he's an idiot. He doesn't know how to fix the economy to help his voters or like, yeah, Franklin Roosevelt, you know, the the, the depression just kept going on because he was a moron and thought the new is like, no Democrats want you to be a paycheck away from devastation because then you're dependent on the government. So, you know, they, they want health care to be really expensive so that your only option is to either work for a big corporation or to be getting subsidized health insurance from the government. Right. Because they don't want people who are independent that have, you know, two years of savings in the bank or that. You know what I mean? That the, the, the kind of person that's independent and could tell his employer to go take a hike and walk away and go you know, do something else. That person's very independent. They, they can speak their mind, whereas somebody who knows, yeah, if I, I got to keep my head down, even like in terms of the culture wars and stuff. Somebody right now who's working for a Fortune 500 company and might have a strong opinion on the Kavanaugh hearings. He's not going to say anything around the water cooler because, you know, he knows if I lose this, this job, then my health insurance is gone and my, you know, maybe my kids get in treatment for something. So, yeah, the whole system right now, everybody is just very dependent on the, the crumbs that the powerful people throw at them. And as you say, even though that's the caricature of capitalism, that's actually not the result of true laissez-faire market economies. That's this highly interventionist state system of, of state cronyism. Oh, this drives me nuts. Is all the people who want to wave the magic wands of other people's money rather than actually go in and solve a problem themselves. Like, if you want the poor to get health care, go study, be a doctor, and then find a way to provide it at a cut rate. You know, if you want uh, people to be better educated, put together educational videos and put them out on YouTube. If You know, like, I just, I really, really dislike this. Well, I want the world to be a better place. So I'm going to whine at the government until corrupt people take other people's money at gunpoint and pretend to solve the problem while actually making people enslaved on the bloody barrels of state power. I just really prefer it when people like, I wanted the world to be more philosophical. So I'm going to whine for the government for massive subsidies for philosophy departments. No, you just go out and make philosophical videos and write philosophical books and books and try to engage people in philosophy. This, 
passivity and, and re- literally passing the bloodstained buck to, to the government has really frustrated me because if you really want to solve a problem, don't you want to wake up, roll up your sleeves and get to work solving it yourself? Yeah, exactly. And this really struck me with the debate over the Affordable Care Act and then later when the Republicans were tweaking it. And so, I mean, how many people just like on Twitter or whatever were just stating matter-of-factly like, oh, well, uh, or like when Rand Paul got attacked, a lot of people were saying, well, I don't have sympathy for him because he was trying to take away my health care. You know, stuff like that. And it was just insane. Or um, I think it was when John McCain changed his vote anyway, but when he was getting treatment, people were saying it wasn't clear how he was going to vote yet on the Affordable Care Act. The, the, the changes to it. And people were saying things like, oh, it's fine for him to get health care, but he's not doesn't want to give it to other people. And I was like, well, John McCain drives a car. Does that mean the government needs to give everyone a car or else he's a hypocrite? You know what I mean? Like, it, just the logic was so crazy. Like, they just, as you say, just take it for granted that, well, no, if I want something, then I'm just going to put a tweet out and that will show I'm a good person. You know, mm. as, if my, as if my tweeting has something to do with, well, somebody has to go to medical school and then go and, and actually work and where are you going to come with the resources to pay for that? You setting out a tweet doesn't magically you know, make someone come out of medical school knowing how to help people. Well, and the idea, and this is really foundational to, I think, what we're talking about. For most people, the economic illiteracy is so high and so rampant that they simply don't ever think that the high cost of something is due to government restriction of supply. Because government restriction of supply could occur through so many different ways, through requiring licenses to open a hospital, through requiring licenses to practice medicine, through having crazy insurance policies that raise deductibles and raise the price of malpractice insurance. I mean, you know, restrictions on on drug production and the FDA and so on. Why is healthcare so expensive? Well, because the government has restricted its supply. And you just compare this to the computer industry. It's an old way of doing it, but I think still quite effective. The government doesn't do much to regulate the computer industry and it gets cheaper and faster all the time. The government, you know, half of every dollar spent on healthcare is spent by the federal government. They have unbelievable layers of control and bureaucracy even before Obamacare to the point where some doctors are spending as much time doing paperwork as they are seeing patients. And of course, with that kind of restriction in supply, you're going to end up with prices going up because it's not like a very elastic demand. You get sick, you need to go see a doctor for the most part. There's a little bit of elastic demand at the the outset, but it's pretty fixed in the middle. But people don't sit there and think, oh, well, if we just reduce these barriers, remove these barriers, the price of healthcare will drop. And that's because there's a huge constituent of people who want to expand government power. But there's also a huge constituent of people who are benefiting from the restrictions into the marketplace and therefore want those restrictions to either maintain themselves or increase. Like if you're some doctor and you went through like this eight-year program and then you did your, uh, you know, 40 hours a day, some ridiculous like number that they work, uh, and then you finally get your license and you've got all this debt and suddenly the government says, oh, we're cutting all these restrictions so that people can compete with you. It's like you would raise high bloody holy hell and I wouldn't blame you, but economically right. it's very destructive. Sure, and of course, you know, the, the average person – you know, they would they would believe in and endorse those restrictions because they'd say, oh, I don't want some quack, you know, doing brain surgery on me. But the idea is like, look, at hospitals could still vet, you know, their surgeons. Right. Just to say that somebody from what or my thing is you could like, for example, the FDA, you know, you could still the FDA could still give its opinion. You know, so like if a drugstore wanted to sell some pharmaceutical product that has not been FDA approved, there could be even like a bright red sticker on it saying FDA is not vouching for this. Proceed with with caution. But, you know, if that thing costs five dollars and the FDA approved stuff costs a thousand dollars, a lot more people might try that. So there's all those elements. The other huge thing, too, is it's it's the third party payment. So, yes, it's like Medicare, but also 
the the way that things have evolved and there's a whole history of course of this but it's like the the patient is no longer the customer they're just a nuisance that gets in the way and just to give one example of how the market is not working at all you can, like let there was a some woman who did this she was like a worked for a radio station and she was pregnant and so she called all the local hospitals just to get a price quote to say hey if i do my delivery with you and it's normal you know no no cesarean just reg- regular thing what's it going to cost only one out of like eight places she called would even give her a number and they were even like saying now hey you can't quote us we're not saying this is so it's kind of imagine if the car market worked that way where imagine if you went to go buy a car and after you bought it they told you how much it cost <laughs> And you, Can didn't you have possibly, to pay for it. and you didn't have to pay for it, right? Can you imagine how screwed up that market would be? But that's what healthcare is, and yet people blame that on the free market. I mean, it's amazing. Another one of the big debates, since we might as well step on every conceivable landmine that we can together, uh, another big debate going on in libertarian circles and uh, free market circles is regarding immigration. And mm-hmm. again, I've, I've had debates on this myself. I'm not sure exactly where you do stand with regards to immigration, its effects on the labor market, uh, possible costs for government programs and so on. You know, there's the idea, well, crossing a border isn't a violation of the non-aggression principle. And then there's, of course, the, um, uh, the argument from uh, Hoppy and others that, you know, the, the taxpayers own the country and should decide who gets uh, to come in. Where do you stand on immigration and uh, it, its impact on the economics of a host country? Okay, so my thing is, let, let me just first say like where I jump in in terms of the rhetorical debate. So I continually like every so Brian Kaplan, for example, who you know I know you know and your listeners may know the economist from George Mason, who's one of the leading advocates of what's called open borders. Every time he has a post, I just mention I say Brian, you actually don't believe in open borders. What you actually believe in is privatize the borders, right? You agree the the best case scenario would be just a private property society where everyone owns land. The individual owner gets to decide, you know, whatever the policies are. And so it seems kind of weird to me. Like, why do you keep advocating? In other words, it's not like Brian Kaplan is a senator and can actually influence the policy, right? He's just an intellectual trying to move public opinion. So it would be as if like an abolitionist, you know, during the 1840s was talking about, uh, you know, like, let's let's treat the slaves better or something. You know, he was like three square a day. And that was his policy when, no, you believe in something completely different. And so, you know, that element, I... As far as the um, the studies, I confess I haven't studied it a lot. Um, my guess is I think at least for smaller bursts or so any empirical example where we can study and see, I think it's it's not that big of a deal in terms of so yes, people come in that tends to push down wages for certain classes of workers, but now there's more people there and so they spend more and da 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 and so it's not a huge thing overall but uh, the problem with that is that really doesn't tell you what would happen if you had you know massive migration right in other words just because 5000 people came in in this one isolated thing that we can study empirically and run regressions on if you totally opened it up that's such a qualitatively different thing i don't know how much that that uh, light that sheds on that particular thing so but i mean the us kind of my, has had yeah. mass migration i mean since the 60s what is it 50 million people have come in largely from the third world to the United States, uh, that is massive, right? And uh, so I don't know that we can say, well, if it's just a couple of thousand, I mean, this is, and, and this is, doesn't even count the 20 to 30 million illegal immigrants that are the illegal aliens that are in America. So I think that there's enough of a coalition that we can look at larger impact studies. Oh, okay. Well, just to be clear, I'm talking about when they try to do like real isolated, like trying to hold other things, you know, so like the, the boat lift exam, you know, a bunch of people coming into Miami, 
and then you can compare that, like compare it to San Francisco or what, you know, so those real control, like control things to try to isolate. Cause yeah, the, the problem with the U S is there's so much stuff changing over 40 years. It's hard to, to isolate and say for, you know, gee, well, how much is that due to immigration? Is that due to something else? So, um, so I guess I will say I have not carefully studied the empirical literature on that because again, for me, you know, I make the more modest point and say, I, you know, this whole system is crazy. <laughs> and ultimately, you know, the, the, you know, for me, the idea would be private property. And, and I know we don't have that right now. And so I'm, I, I kind of, I'm sympathetic to both sides of people that say, well, gee, I don't want politicians determining who can cross a border. But on the other hand, I, I realize the people who are being very practical and say, well, this is the system we have now. And if you let more people in from certain places, what if they vote a certain way? I get that too. So it's, it's, it's kind of, to me, the analogy I use is like, if you ask me, should there be prayer allowed in government schools there's no good answer to that. Yeah, I under, you know, and it's sad right, to so think that, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, because yeah. it's sad to think that Americans who desperately want a wall and, and Europeans and, and Canadians def- desperately want reductions in immigration. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the immigrants from the third world overwhelmingly vote for the left. Immigrants from Mexico overly, that means collectivist cultures. It's a whole backdrop. It's a whole, you know, a, a lot of the free market books are, are only available in English. It's little things like that. And it's so sad to me, Bob, that the American public so desperately want a wall that they'll vote in a guy with no experience, you know, who seems to have banged everything with half a pulse in, in a 20 foot radius for the past 30 years. Rather than just saying, well, we want a wall, so let's all get together. We're going to buy up some land. We're going to build a wall. You know, they've got to go and beg on, on knees like supplicants to, to hope that some guy is going to convince his party to release the funds to get it done. And uh, that is so disempowering. It's kind of horrible. So let's talk a little bit about the possible mirage of the economic recovery. You know, is it a dead cat bounce? Is it the last twitch before the expiration? You know, is it like when they um, they can't revive the patient, but they put the um, electrodes on the side of the chest, you know, like, that's, hey, there's a lot of movement. It's like, yeah, but it's about to stop. And that is, of course, the big concern among people who are interested in the free market and kind of understand it, that the numbers can be kind of jigged. And uh, the, the unfunded liabilities, the debts, the regulatory burden is so intense and so high that recovery has become functionally impossible, or at least a kind of recovery that doesn't involve a lot of suffering. Right. And so here, um, just a lot of the things that, you know, I've been following politics since I was a teenager, and it was always this long, like, for example, the unfunded liabilities. Like, oh, at some point, you know, Social Security is going to flip to be cash flow negative, and then they're going to burn through the trust fund. Da, da, da. And that was always something that was like 30 years away. And it's like, we really need to, re- to reform this. And now we're already there. Like so, Social Security has been losing money in terms of incoming payroll contributions have been less than the outgoing benefit payments for several years at this point. And you know, even if you segregate in terms of the accounting and count the Social Security trust fund, pretty soon that's going to be they're going to be selling off those funds to the rest of the government. So, you know, that stuff is already upon us. What used to be this looming thing that we're going to have to deal with that at some point is already right here. There's a recent uh, New York Times article just projecting CBO saying within a decade, the interest on the federal debt will be over $900 billion. The annual, how much they spend every year just to service the debt is going to be over $900 billion. So these kind of things, I mean, it's not crazy conspiracy fear-mongering to say like the Treasury may have to default. That might be the best thing to do over the next 10 years. So, you know, this is crazy if interest rates keep rising. So I think what happened is during the Obama years, as the Fed pushed interest rates down to zero, 
it, it sort of masked the pain that there were four years in a row when the Obama administration had trillion dollar plus deficits. And but yet that didn't do what it normally would because the Fed at the same time was monetizing the debt and, you know, things were, were low. So I th- the analogy I use is like if you run up your credit card debt, but you keep getting zero percent APR offers in the mail, it doesn't the, the irresponsibility of what you've done doesn't hit you right away. It's only when those offers stop and then all of a sudden the rates reset and you realize, do I want to pay this offer? Just walk away and kill my credit. Well, I, and I just want to point out some people really yeah. get mad at Obama for that. And certainly he was King Spendy, but a lot of this stuff was just snowballing beyond his control. All of the mandatory spending that the president has very little. Uh, it's all just, sure. you know, it's all just accumulating all of these obligations and so on. So he certainly had something to do with it, but sure. I don't like when people blame individuals for the momentum of a system as a whole. Yeah, I'm fine with it. And certainly, you know, like the George W. Bush administration, like Medicare Part D, completely indefensible. And you couldn't even blame, oh, well, the Democrats control Congress. No. So, I mean, me growing up, the story was always, well, those rascally Democrats are forcing us to spend more. You know, Ronald Reagan is a great guy. He hates spend. And so, yeah, in my lifetime, then under the George W. Bush administration, that last excuse went away. So so you're right. I don't want to make it sound like I'm blaming Obama. I'm just, my point is, Normally, four years of trillion dollar plus deficits would have freaked everybody out and the, and the markets would have screamed bloody murder. But yet we were in a period there where the Fed was you know, doing QE and everything and all the rules seemed to be different. So I think that's why that didn't send off alarm, the alarm bells that normally would have. So to answer your question, yeah, like the, the stock market increase, you know, that happened while the Fed was buying bonds and Nothing in terms of normal economics was going right at that period. You know, the Obama administration was threatening a carbon tax, you know, Affordable Care Act, whatever you think of it, certainly was not a pro-growth. You know, people might have liked it for equity reasons, but certainly not, you know, taking or having the government take over health insurance is not a good idea. All these things they were putting in place were not were not things you would have thought would stimulate profitability. And so yet when you see that, you know, something's got to be screwy. So, yeah, I think the 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 te- the recovery tepid as it has been was fueled by the fed so trump did do some good things so i think some of the growth under trump especially if people had been baking in a hillary clinton presidency yeah. and then the switch i think a lot of that was legitimate you know in other words like the response of the stock market in the first year of the trump administration i think was you know defensible and that made you know was really rational if you want to use that terminology but yes yeah, still I just I don't look at measures of like home price indices, for example, in the U.S. To me, that that seems unsustainable. And and people I know people are you're just a fear monger. But, yeah, people were saying that about the people who were warning of the housing bubble in 2006. (laughs) You know, so sometimes the fear mongers are correct. (laughs) Right. Well, let's um, close off on a topic that I think is very, uh, very important, which is this question of the student debt bubble which is what, 1.5 trillion, some, some insane number at the moment. That to me is one of the easiest ones to solve and would be one of the most effective ones to solve. Just allow students to discharge their debt through bankruptcy, you know, like everyone else does. I mean, uh, we're not asking for everyone to have massive subsidies like, say, the bankers at 0708, but just allow students to discharge unprofitable debt in bankruptcy proceedings. The fact that they're not allowed to, it's one of these, I won't go on off a huge rant here, but it's one of these pet peeves I have. There's more than a peeve, which is you have a bunch of leftist professors lecturing students about exploitation by capitalists when the professors are being paid for by loans enforced by the government that the students can't wriggle out of that take from sometimes five times longer to pay off than a car loan. 
it's absolutely abysmal how much the leftists are exploiting the most vulnerable in society, you know, 17, 18-year-old kids who don't know their ass from a hole in the ground in terms of future value and viability and maybe can't even project how long it's going to take them to pay off their debts or how much money they might make from those uh, loans. It's horribly exploitive, horribly destructive, and forcing, in a sense, taxpayers to fund the spread of communist propaganda is really one of the great slate of hands in the evil deck of human history. Um, Where do you think solutions, if you think there are needed to, to be solutions, where do you think solutions can come from in this situation? Yeah, I agree with everything you just said there. And I think even a lot of your listeners might be surprised to see how much of the student loan portfolio was taken on the federal government's books over the last 10 years. I mean, that's something that, I mean, it's, it's amazing how much they absorbed. And so, yeah, the taxpayers are directly responsible, um, you know, on the receiving end of that. And you're right. It, it is amazing that normally you would think progressive leftists would be outraged. Are you kidding me? Poor students aren't allowed to just declare bankruptcy. Like they have to have this thing, you know, sail around their necks forever. And yet that's the deal that was made. And I guess they support it because they like higher education so much. They realize that that, you know, that's the source of their prestige. So yeah, I think the solution that's pretty simple, allow them to default on that and might just ruin your credit. But you know, that's, that's if you want to make that choice. And then that will, knowing that now people are allowed to default like on any other loan, that will make lenders a little bit more uh, responsible and maybe they won't. And so that will stop fueling this ridiculous rise in tuition um, from colleges. I, I think ultimately, and I know you talked about this a lot. I heard you on Tom Woods talking about it. Ultimately, I think businesses are going to realize we don't need as a screen to say someone has to be a college grad. Like that is no longer providing the signal that we want. There's much better ways to see who do we want to have working for. So I think we need to get away from this idea that everyone has to go to college to get a four-year degree or else you're not a good human being. I mean, that that's that's a crazy system. Well, and if employers can find some other system, it's hugely economically efficient because then you don't have to pay not only for the direct cost of the education, but for the uh, the cost of deferred income that the person has endured for close to half a decade. So you can end up with much cheaper employees who aren't depressed, who don't feel enslaved, who can actually talk back to you because they don't feel overburdened by debt and can't afford to get fired, which is good. You want that kind of 360 feedback as a manager and uh, you can reduce the price of your products because you're paying your workers less. I mean, it's such a powerful thing that I can't imagine it's going to take long for employers to figure out that there's many better, many better ways to figure out uh, how to get uh, smart employees. I mean, you know, if you want programmers, just show me the iOS app that you've built. You know, if you want people to work in media, show me your podcast channel. I mean, there's so many different ways to do it that are much more practical. I just can't wait. And I think a combination of those two. But it would also be great to get actual default statistics for various degrees, right? So if people who take sociology or art history are defaulting on their loans at a rate of 40 or 50 or 60%, well, that would be pretty important. Uh, if they're declaring bankruptcy, it's a lot harder to find that data now because it's much more scattered. But if you were actually to see bankruptcies occurring and popping up in particular disciplines, that'd be very powerful for people to see for the students going in saying, wow, so a 50% chance I might have to declare bankruptcy if I take this degree. I think I would shift my gears just a little. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And of course, yeah, the lenders would take that into account also. You know, somebody promising is going to go to medical school. Yeah, okay, we'll underwrite that. But yeah, somebody doing something else, feminist studies probably wouldn't. Um, yeah, you're exactly right. And also, too, just for people who never have thought this through, imagine if all of a sudden society said everyone needs to get a PhD or else you're not a responsible citizen. You can see how crazy, and not only the, the waste of extra time, everybody now loses four or five more years before they can work, but beyond that, all the programs would get watered down. 
So, so in other words, it's not merely the waste of the people who really don't need to do that. It's also the people who should be getting PhDs now. The, they wouldn't be, you know, they wouldn't be as productive because, the, and the same thing at the, at the undergrad level, just not as extreme. Like when I was was teaching in in Hillsdale, I noticed this more. I was I was teaching a lot of, you know, I had a pretty full load, and I thought about half these students shouldn't be here, and I and I don't mean because oh they're they're not intelligent. I just meant they, you know, they were there because they were going to run their dad's business and they had to get a degree, you know, like and. and you know, the, the, the kind of things they could have taken a few accounting classes or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Like the, they didn't need to be getting the four year thing where half the time they were going to frat parties anyway, you know, and, and, and this was a pretty, you know, a fairly elite school. I'm you know, I know it's, it's much worse at other schools as well. So again, it's, it's not a, a you know, me making fun of certain people, just some people. And, and then I, my point is I had to change the way I taught the class. If it had been people who were there because they were really just scholars and they wanted to you know, learn about the Western canon, I could have taught the class one way. But since I knew half the class were business majors who were just checking a box and they had to take my class because it was part of their major, you know, I couldn't leave them behind and ignore, you know, so it's, it was the worst of, of both worlds. Everybody was miserable in that class, you know, in some of those introductory classes. Oh, it's really horrible. And it comes out of a fundamental misrepresentation of cause and effect. School doesn't make you smarter any more than basketball makes you taller. You know, or like if you and I audition for hair ads, it's not like we suddenly get luxurious pelts of, you know, hair. It's just people with great hair end up in those hair ads and uh, people who are very smart should go to school. But the idea that if you go to school, you become really smart is unsupported by any of the data that I've ever seen. And uh, it is, of course, mining the prestige that comes from prior generations of smart people. Like it used to be that 10% 10% or so of people went to college. Now it's 40 to 50%. And it's not like uh, we've le- leapt ahead cognitively uh, so quickly. It just means that the value of the college degree gets diluted. And that's a real shame because then not only do a lot of people end up with useless degrees, but the really smart people, it's really hard to differentiate them from the general people who got in just to stuff the numbers. Right, exactly. I mean, it's sort of like it breaks down into an arms race that if, if everybody needs a college degree, then we all just go to college, right? Just like it would be crazy if if every if employers thought if you don't have a PhD, there must be something wrong with you, and so everybody had to go get a PhD. That wouldn't give you an advantage. That just means everybody now has to waste four or five more years going to school and struggling, and you know the the headaches and geez, this is hard. And then so it it does no it doesn't it's bad for everybody, like you say that the signal gets diluted to the extent that it really is just an arms race. And so yeah, well, let's just all. And, and so if that's the natural voluntary outcome, so be it, but it's not. There's plenty of things with the government actively spending hundreds of billions subsidizing these things. And like you say, the things about not being able to default on the loans. So this is this is not a normal outcome. This was forced. And so the fact that it's quite harmful is just all the more reason to, to stop this crazy idea. Well, and I mean, the, the idea or the argument that everybody has to go to college, I can't see it as anything other than a massive confession that government schools suck. And after you've been on the government schools for 12 years, you're economically completely useless and therefore you need to go to college. So rather than raise the game in the government schools, they're just passing the buck to the colleges who can't fix what government schools have broken. Well, I really want to thank you for your time. I wanted to remind people to check out uh, Dr. Murphy's uh, great books, also his Contra Krugman podcast is fascinating with Tom Woods. His conversations with Dave Smith uh, are great. You can't dip into this man's work without coming out illuminated, refreshed, and I dare say smelling like roses. So I really, really want to thank you for your time. I hope we can do this again soon. 
Thanks, Stefan. I just want to tell you, yep, I got the new book at ContraKrugmanBook.com is where you can see the latest Smackdowns of Krugman. Thanks uh, for having me on.